part one of this series, I wrote about the history and formation of the Hebrew Bible leading up to the time of Jesus. Equally important to the Christian church is the history and formation of the New Testament, which is made up of 27 books and written in Koine Greek, the language of the first century. Between 50 and 150 AD, many writings began to circulate that were written to specific Christian communities. 1 Thessalonians, an epistle of Paul, is believed to be one of the earliest of these writings, probably written around 51 AD. There are several factors that led to the canonization of the New Testament. The early church suffered persecution during the first three centuries, which forced many to leave their homeland. Certain areas were using writings that were not available to other groups, which gave rise to heresy among early sects. By the end of the second century, you could already see the foundation being laid, although the early church did not agree on a single set of writings yet. Most of the debate during the second century was between the church in the east near Alexandria and Asia Minor and the church in the west near Rome. The west rejected the book of Hebrews largely because it does not allow repentance for the baptized Christian who commits apostasy and rejects their faith. Apostasy was a major problem in the West where they were subjected to persecution. The Eastern Church rejected the book of Revelation, having doubts concerning its authorship. It wasn't until the 4th century that Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, in his Easter letter of 367, would seem to settle the dispute by including both Revelation and Hebrews in what would become the 27 canonical books of the New Testament. A few minor controversies continued over the next hundred years, but were mostly settled with little change. The leaders of the early church down through the ages would all affirm that the Bible is the inspired word of God and divine in nature. Exactly how each leader would define inspiration differs through the centuries, but all would agree that God was involved in the process of revealing himself to man, progressively pointing us to Jesus. As George MacDonald points out, Quote, the Bible nowhere lays claim to be regarded as the word, the way, the truth. The Bible leads us to Jesus, the inexhaustible, the ever-unfolding revelation of God. It is Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not the Bible. End of quote. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus takes two men on a journey back through their divinely inspired scripture, where he interprets to them all the things concerning himself. This would indicate that Scripture itself was divinely inspired with a primary purpose, to reveal Jesus. The Word was in the beginning with God, and was the life which was the light of all men. Even still, the darkness that pervaded mankind was so profound, they were unable to comprehend this light. So God would take the initiative to inspire certain men, limited as they were, to allow the Spirit to move them to record glimpses of His character and nature. This was a God-breathed inspiration, not a dictation. As leading New Testament scholar and Pauline theologian N.T. Wright explains, quote, If you have a distant God with rather passive human beings down below, inspiration would just be God using human beings as typewriters. Now that's not the view of God and of humans in the Bible itself. So the Bible itself will turn against you if you start saying that. And somehow the other thing that gets missed out there, you see at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
He doesn't say, all authority has been given to the books you chaps are going to go and write. So somehow scripture itself reminds us that Jesus is the one still who has authority, and if scripture has authority, it's somehow delegated from him. End of quote. Scripture itself emerges from God's relationship with man. Therefore, the Bible is the product of that relationship, not the foundation. God was communicating with man before there were trees to make paper to put pen to. The church fathers and the reformers all held a very high view of Scripture, yet as you will see, they did not ignore or excuse the humanity within the writings. Each had different ways of dealing with contradictions and cruel depictions of God, but they all affirmed that its purpose, Old and New Testament, was to lead us to Jesus. It was Origen of Alexandria during the 3rd century who would lay the foundation and framework for the later biblical interpretation. Origen believed the sacred books, quote, were written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit at the will of the Father of all through Jesus Christ, end of quote. For Origen, the purpose of Scripture was to bring men to salvation, and to reach this purpose, God had to accommodate himself to human forms of thought and language. According to Jack B. Rogers and Donald K. McKim in their book, The Authority and Interpretation of the Bible, an Historical Approach, quote, Origen was completely conscious of human character of the holy writings. He rejected any idea of a mechanical mode of inspiration, whether that of the prophets or of the biblical writers. End of quote. For Origen, the incarnation of the Word was the clearest model for interpreting Scripture. Similar to the way Jesus, though he was God, did not consider his divine qualities as something to cling to and was willing to take on the appearance of humanity. God's wisdom and mysteries were beyond man's comprehension. Therefore, God accommodated himself to human understanding by adapting the human ways of thinking and speaking. Accommodation worked in two ways for origin. To the godly, it revealed hidden truths, but to the ungodly, it concealed these truths. It was similar to a father's communication with his children. McKim and Rogers says this about origin. He condescends and lowers himself accommodating himself to our weakness, like a schoolmaster talking a little language to his children, like a father caring for his own children and adopting their ways, end quote. Origen spoke of the law books as the Old Testament of the Old Testament. He was also quick to point out that Jesus himself distinguished between the laws of Moses and the laws of God. Concerning the Jews, he wrote, quote, and how great was the advantage which they enjoyed in being instructed almost from their birth, and as soon as they could speak, in the immortality of the soul, and in the existence of courts of justice under the earth, and in the rewards provided for those who have lived righteous lives. These truths indeed were proclaimed in the veil of fable to children, and to those whose views of things were childish. While to those who were already occupied in investigating the truth and desirous of making progress therein, these fables, so to speak, were transfigured into the truths which were concealed within them. Origen often spoke of Scripture as composed of two elements, the divine and the human. He sees this indicated in the account of the anointing by Jesus of the eyes of the blind man with mud mixed with saliva. Quote, 
Consider then if you can take the whole scripture and the manner of the record given in it and say that it is composed as far as concerns the divine ideas in it from the saliva of Christ, but as far as the record given in apparently historical narrative and in human affairs from the clay of the earth, end of quote. But he adds that we can eventually cast aside the mud in order that we can approach Jesus seeing. Again, he says, quote, If we must make distinctions between the testaments and say that these gods disagree with each other, I would boldly say that a much more human element is exhibited in the Old Testament than in the New. End of quote. Origen would use his understanding of God's accommodation in Scripture as a defense against those he believed were challenging its divine authority. Several sects began interpreting the Old Testament literally, denying its saving message. Origen argued against these groups for taking the Old Testament literally and arriving at a picture of God that, quote, would not be believed of the most savage and unjust mankind, end of quote. All of these wrong understandings resulted from interpreting the Bible according to the bare letter and not according to its spiritual meaning. Origen believed God met the biblical writers where they were on their journey, progressively revealing himself as history moved toward the space and time where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Origen believed the Bible was entirely the work of God as he inspired these writers through the centuries. Yet Origen wasn't locked into a rigid frame set where the humanity of the writer was excluded from the process. Origen believed God accommodated himself to their understanding and worldview. Again, Origen says, quote, Since the Jews loved sacrifices being accustomed to them in Egypt, as the golden calf in the desert gives witness, God permits them to offer them to himself so as to curb their disordered tendency to polytheism and to turn them away from sacrificing to idols. End of quote. For Origen, the Jews were already accustomed to sacrifices they would have witnessed in Egypt, so God allows them to offer these sacrifices as a way to direct their behavior towards himself and away from polytheism, progressively revealing his true character and nature. Origen's understanding of accommodation will become a central piece of Christian theological tradition. Revered as one of the greatest preachers of the early church, John Chrysostom from the 4th century studied theology at the school of Antioch. Chrysostom, just like Origen, shared the common view of the early church that God had accommodated his teachings to fit the limitations of his children. Quote, For he permitted opinions erroneous and unworthy of himself to prevail, as that he was a body formerly, and that he was visible. Again, that he delighted in sacrifices, which is far from his nature, and he utters words at variance with his declarations of himself, and many such things. For he nowhere considers his own dignity, but always what will be profitable to us. And if a father considers not his own dignity, but talks lispingly with his children, and calls their meat and drink not by their Greek names, but by some childish and barbarous words, much more doth God, and in every part of Scripture there are instances of his condescension both in words and actions. End of quote. Central to Christostom's interpretation of divine Scripture was God's willing participation in the Incarnation as an act of accommodation for our salvation. Quote, 
Christ often checked himself for the sake of the weakness of his hearers when he dealt with lofty doctrines, and that he usually did not choose such words as were in accord with his glory, but rather those which agreed with the capability of men. End of quote. According to Jack B. Rogers and Donald K. McKim, quote, the twin concerns expressed by Chrysostom in his concept of accommodation are our weakness and God's worthiness. Language must be understood in a way that is effective for our salvation and which befits God. An exegete who failed to heed those principles of interpretation would descend to mere literalism and the result would be utter absurdity. End of quote. Viewed as one of the most influential church fathers in Western Christianity, St. Augustine of Hippo converted to Christianity in 386 AD at the age of 31. Augustine spent 10 years as a Manichaean, a form of Gnosticism which believed that all matter was evil and that only the non-material spirit realm was good. This religious movement spread and briefly became a major opposition to Christianity. Augustine, like all the other church fathers, would affirm the Bible as the divine scripture and the inspired word of God. For Augustine, one had to commit to believing before one could understand. He believed the function of the Bible was to bring people to salvation in Jesus Christ. He argued all the passages of Scripture speak of Christ. Augustine never wavered in his conviction that the Bible was true in its message, and yet he was quite aware of the problems and contradictions within the text itself. According to Rogers and McKim, quote, Augustine knew that the primary purpose of Scripture was to bring us as children into a right relationship with God, our parent. Augustine declared in a quotation used and affirmed by Calvin centuries later, We can safely follow Scripture, which proceeds at the pace of a mother stooping to her child, so to speak, so as to not leave us behind in our weakness. In his work, Confessions, Augustine reveals that at first he was uncomfortable with the way the Old and New Testament related. Augustine used the concept of accommodation to harmonize the old and new, which had come under fire by the Manichaeans, Gnostics, and the Marcionites, who were all interpreting the scripture literally. Augustine would speak of the holy scripture which suits itself to babe. End of quote. Augustine spoke about the apostle John concerning his writings. Quote, I venture to say, brethren, that not even John himself has presented these things just as they are, but only as best he could since he was a man who spoke of God inspired, of course, but still a man. Because he was inspired, he was able to say something, but because he who was inspired remained a man, he could not present the full reality, but only what a man could say about it. End of quote. When Augustine confronted such text in Scripture, he would suggest that, quote, the manuscript is faulty, the translation is wrong, or you have not understood, end of quote. For Augustine, error in Scripture was a deliberate attempt by the writers to deceive the reader. It was in this sense that he could state that the authors were completely free from error. The Manichaeans argued that the Old Testament had to be read literally. They would use these literal interpretations to expose the immorality of the patriarchs in attempts to discredit the biblical writers. Augustine would work diligently in defense and would use an allegorical method of interpretation. For Augustine, literalism was the enemy. When he came to passages that were difficult, he would just suggest that one needs to look deeper into the spiritual meaning. 
In the end, Augustine viewed God's act of divine accommodation towards man's limited comprehension not as a hindrance, but rather an enhancement. The Protestant Reformation in the 16th century would place the Bible once again at the center of hot debate. In 1517, Martin Luther attached his 95 Thesis on the door of the All Saints Church, sparking a schism that led to the division of Western Christianity into many different confessions of faith. Luther and his successors, Huldrych, Zwingli, and John Calvin, in an attempt to reform the Catholic Church, openly condemned the sale of indulgences and insisted that the Pope had no authority over purgatory or even Scripture. This led to incorporated doctrinal changes, which included the complete reliance on Scripture as the one and only source of proper belief, a doctrine known as sola scriptura, Latin for by Scripture alone. Martin Luther said, quote, A simple layman armed with Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it, unquote. With the authority of the pope no longer in the picture, the reformers would now appeal to the Bible as their source of authority. As time went on, it was Luther and Calvin who would emerge as the dominant influence upon Protestant scholastics. Both men would continue to appeal to Scripture as infallible or unerring rule of faith. Only for them, what was meant was that the Bible was trustworthy in all things necessary for salvation, but not in its accuracy of factual accounts. Luther held the Bible in high esteem, but freely acknowledged inaccuracies and contradictions. In his book, The Remaking of Evangelical Theology, professor and theologian Gary Dorian says this of Martin Luther, quote, He often judged that the prophets often erred in their predictions that various prophecies in Isaiah were scrambled together and that Moses mixed up his laws in a confused and disorderly way. He taught that chronicles contained numerous conflated accounts. He noted that the gospel writers often gave conflicting accounts of the same event. Luther doubted that the book of Esther belonged in the Bible because it does not mention God and famously judged that the book of James, quote, an epistle of straw, end of quote, was defective in its treatment of justification. He judged that Hebrews 6.4 taught false doctrine in denying a second repentance. Neither could he find any trace of evidence that the book of Revelation was inspired because, quote, Christ is neither taught or known in it, end of quote. Luther's high view of Scripture never caused him to turn a blind eye to the contradictions and inaccuracies in the text. Luther, like the early church fathers, wrestled with these texts. According to Dorian, quote, In all these cases, Luther judged the spiritual worth of scriptural texts by the relative force and directness of their witness to Christ. The gospel message is the key to Christianity, he taught, and the gospel is essentially oral in character. It is never to be equated with the scriptural text itself. Luther noted that Christ wrote nothing and gave no command to record his words or deeds. Luther's conception of scriptural authority was so firmly tied to his understanding of Scripture as a book about Christ's salvation of sinners, he could retort to his opponents that if they alleged Scripture against Christ, he was prepared to allege Christ against Scripture. End of quote. John Calvin was more conservative in his approach to Scripture, although he never shot away or denied the presence of contradictions in the Bible. Dorian says of Calvin, quote, Calvin acknowledged 
as plainly as Luther, however, that the biblical writers were not strongly concerned with precise accuracy and that their worldview often prevented them from making accurate statements. He regarded such passages as evidence that the Holy Spirit accommodated the ancient he regarded such passages as evidence that the Holy Spirit accommodated the ancient worldview of the biblical writers in inspiring Scripture. End of quote. It would be Luther and Calvin's successors who would be faced with the critics of the Reformation and the dawn of a new age ruled by reason. Protestant teaching began to present Scripture as the highest form of science. Andreas Quinstedt a Lutheran dogmatist in the 17th century insisted that the Holy Scripture passes all of Aristotle's tests for scientific veracity, and the Scripture contains, quote, not even the smallest error either in words or matter, whether it be a matter of dogma or of morals or of history or of chronology or of topography or of nomenclature, end of quote. It wouldn't be long until the doctrine of the Word of God would no longer be an article of faith, but the foundation of all other articles of faith. For a complete list of all the sources quoted in this podcast, you can go to my website at jpshafer.com. 